passage for today is Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 9. We come a long way journeying through this book, this treaty that the Lord is making with his beloved but inferior people. And by way of reminder, let's take a brief trip down memory lane to kind of catch us up. First three chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses reminded the people of their recent history, their 40 years of wandering around in the desert. See, the Lord told his people to go and take over the land that he promised to give them. And they sent spies into the land just to kind of see what they were dealing with. But God's people got scared when they saw giants. They falsely accused the Lord that he wanted his people to die at the hands of their enemies. Well, apparently the, the incredible deliverance that God wrought in Egypt wasn't enough. They weren't convinced. And God became angry. God saw into their hearts, though, as only he can see. Yes, they were afraid. But God knew that they were inexperienced in the battle. And so God set about to train them. And over the next 40 years, the Lord saw his people not only defeat one enemy, but two. If we remember the Siog campaign. And Israel's defeated foes included the Amorites as well as giants. So the Lord trained them to where they could overcome their fears and have the victory. And then in chapters 4 and 5, Moses talks to the people about the ways of the Lord, summarized in the ten words. Israel's human commander was also their wise shepherd. And Moses gave them the incentive to go after the ways of the Lord. Remember how Moses described the Lord's statutes and rules? Your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this nation is a great nation. It's a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I set before you today. You know, far from being oppressive and impossible to obey, Yahweh gave his ways to his people so that they might be his witnesses to the nations, to show the nations how good and how wise and great Israel is, right? No, no, no. How good and wise and gracious the Lord is. And they can be a part of that. Also in these two chapters, four and five, Moses brings to their minds that terrifying day when their Savior and their King thundered the commandments on Mount Sinai. But it wasn't though as, as the Lord took some kind of sadistic pleasure in scaring the bejeebers out of people. No, he was just being who he was. You know, God alone is unapproachable in his full glory. And when he gave his commands to his people, in the majestic way that he did, he was only being who he is. And the truth is that mortal man cannot withstand the full force of God's glory. But as majestic as Yahweh is, remember the longing heart to enter a relationship with his people. This very one who is fit to take the universe's throne said this, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God wants an obedient, trusting relationship with his people, sinful though they and we be. 
So what does the Lord do to set things up that his people might develop what the Lord desires? In a word, it's discipleship. God appointed Moses to teach the people the Lord's ways that they might be obedient to him. And with the journey of the book of Deuteronomy firmly etched into our minds now, now let's turn to the passage. Again, we're going to see discipleship Moses style here. And Moses, as Israel's pastor, lays down the foundational path that they, as a nation, are to follow as they live out Yahweh's ways. As we're going to see today, Moses gets very specific in the discipleship how-tos as he trains the nation to pass the ways of the Lord on from one person to another and from one generation to the next generation. So let's get some clues from God's word today that we might be better disciple makers too. And by the way, you know, my prayer, my constant prayer for all of us who call Grace United their own is that every one of us will be involved in an actual intentional discipleship relationship. If you're not part of one of those, my prayer for you is that God would move upon your heart to either be a mentor or be a mentee. Because this is the only job that God has given us, right? It says, go and make disciples of all nations. And that starts right here. So let's get the big picture of discipleship and that perspective in verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me, as in Moses, to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Big picture perspective here. Moses reminds the people of the primary job that Yahweh gave him to do, which is to make disciples. See, Moses is to teach the people in such a way that the people would obey the Lord. Again, we're familiar with this idea as New Testament Christians, aren't we? Remember when the risen Lord Jesus gave his disciples what we call the Great Commission, Matthew 20, 18 and 20. What did he say? Jesus said, came up to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because of this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do whatever I have commanded you to do. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. And so let me highlight for you now how the Great Commission and the Lord's commandments spoken through Moses dovetail together. Jesus refers to the authority that the Father gave him when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And certainly we can see that Moses had divine authority to do what he did as well. Jesus said, go and make disciples, teaching them to observe, to conform your behavior to the ways of God, all that I've commanded you. And God gave Moses the task of doing the very same thing to his people. I repeatedly pointed out last week and today about the issue of discipleship in this passage and in Jesus' issuing of the Great Commission. And let me put in bold letters here, so to speak, the dynamics of discipleship. Now, as we know, a disciple is a learner, an apprentice, a trainee. And this means primarily that this person, under the direction of the master, will by definition fail and fail. 
and fail some more. But anybody who really wants to learn something new knows that failure comes with the territory. Time fails us to even list the number of times that Peter, for example, was guilty of foot and mouth disease. How many times did Peter say the wrong thing at the wrong time? Perhaps that's why so many of us love Peter. You know, we can see ourselves in him. The Lord can restore Peter, who has failed so much. Maybe we have hope as well. And when it comes to Moses teaching the people, the same idea applies. Moses is to teach Israel the ways of the Lord that they might become skillful at carrying out Yahweh's rules and statutes, to practice, to get better, and to get better at it. Now, they're going to fail in their discipleship. But in their failure, they're to be more consistent, more faithful in their obedience to the Lord's ways. And it stands to reason, for if God expected them to get it all right at once, the very first time, there would be no reason for Moses to teach. Now, would there? And I think about what Peter, again, wrote to his mentees, to his disciples in 2 Peter chapter 1. So let's turn there, if you would, please. Keep your finger in Deuteronomy and go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And we're going to see here some development of discipleship here. So as he gives his greetings, Peter then writes this, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are what? Increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, in a word, is discipleship visualized. We are to get more consistent and more fruitful as we learn more of who Christ is and get better at applying his ways to our lives. Practice, practice, practice. This is all about. Our discipleship is a marathon, isn't it? It's not a 100-yard dash or 100-meter dash. It takes a lifetime, doesn't it, for sinful, though redeemed human beings to really get things right before the Lord. And aren't you glad this morning that the Lord is so patient and so kind toward his people? And so discipleship is the name of the game in verse 1. But now let me direct your attention to verse 2, where Moses now brings up the idea of fearing the Lord. How interesting, isn't it? And possibly even confusing that he with this phrase right here. The Lord through Moses emphasizes obedience and growth in their discipleship. But now it seems like Moses is quickly pivoting and now talking about fearing the Lord. Why is he doing this here? Well, what does it mean to fear the Lord? When we boil it all down by looking at the passages of Scripture that contain this phrase, fearing the Lord, we see that it involves our emotions, our will, and our minds as well. There's an emotional aspect to fearing the Lord. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? It involves a quaking in one's sandals. Think Yahweh coming down on Mount Sinai and thundering out the ten words. The people reacted, didn't they? If we hear Yahweh speak directly to us again, we're going to die. That was their attitude. That was their response. There's also a volitional aspect as well. 
where a person exercises their will in order to do what God wants them to do. That's fearing the Lord too. There's also a mental aspect where the Lord wants his people to learn to fear him. Learn it. We're going to see this in several weeks from now. In Deuteronomy 17, for example, Yahweh commanded that one of the tasks of every king who was to sit on the throne of Israel was to take the book of the law, Deuteronomy, and to write it out, copy it word for word, so that the king might learn to fear the Lord and do his commandments. In Deuteronomy 31, the Lord through Moses commanded that the whole nation comes together every seven years at the Feast of Sukkot, for example, and to read Deuteronomy from start to finish. Why? So that the entire nation would learn to fear the Lord. So fearing the Lord simply but profoundly means that the people take into account who is speaking to them. Ultimately, it is Yahweh. When God's people fear him, they acknowledge their proper place on the pecking order while at the same time acknowledging where God is. He's the king above all gods. He's the almighty creator. He's the one who has all authority, the one who is fit to take the universe's throne. In the words of Steve Green's song, God and God Alone. The bottom line regarding fearing the Lord is simply this. It's obedience. They were to fear the Lord so that they might obey his ways. And now if we look at the end results of discipleship and fearing the Lord, the results are the same. Obedience is what God is after. They were to obey because they loved the Lord. They were to obey because they were learners of Yahweh. They were to obey because they feared the Lord. And this goes on for everybody in the nation, beginning with the head of the household on down to the youngest individual. All are on Yahweh's powerful and loving and benevolent authority. But it's not as though the Lord gets some sort of morbid pleasure by throwing his weight around and forcing people to obey his commands. It's not that way at all. Let's look at verse 3. To discover the Lord's incentives he gives his people to obey him. Here's what he says in verse 3. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to do them, as in doing his statutes and commandments that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So the Lord gives not just one incentive to obey him, he gives three. The first one is a long life. For as one author puts it, righteousness lengthens life and sin shortens life. Would you agree with that? Now this makes perfect sense though. Because when we live according to the Lord's ways, we naturally live longer. Now, of course, there's exceptions, but that's the way it normally is. Let me give you one example of which we can talk many examples of how this works. But when we refuse to covet our neighbor's stuff, that's one of the ten words, right? Don't covet. We can come a long way to living in the state of being content with what the Lord has given us. And when we are content, with what the Lord is giving us, we spare ourselves the feelings of envy. Our blood pressure doesn't go up when we see the cars and houses of our neighbors that are better than ours. And why is that? Because we're grateful for what God has given us. We get to stay in our lane, so to speak. And our attitude is, you know what, neighbors? You do you, and I do me. 
And life works better that way, doesn't it? Incentive number two is a lot of kids, a lot of offspring, a lot of people in the nation. And as a nation, the Lord will reward his people with a lot of people as they obey him. A lot of people, offspring. It's a blessing for the Lord, isn't it? We could talk about this for a long time, about how great this incentive is. But suffice it to say, in the words of the psalmist, in Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children, and even grandchildren, right, are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Instead of number three, the land flowing with milk and honey is what God wants to give his people to obey him. This is the Lord's portion. This is his land. And he wants his people to live on his land. Milk and honey, in a nutshell, means absolute satisfaction. Abundant harvests. Many animals to eat and to raise and those things. All needs met. Because, you know, when you're living in an agricultural society, to have those kinds of blessings is an amazing thing. In other words, for Israel, life could not get any better living in God's land, under God's protection, feasting on God's provision. Now you tell me, who wouldn't want that? But that is the temptation, isn't it? To go after what the Lord can give and not seek to live in a close relationship with Him, the giver. See, the human condition is to seek the Lord's hands, but not His face. To seek His gifts, but not intimacy with Him. The Lord wants his people to live in an obedient, trusting relationship with him. But what do we want? We want stuff that he can provide while we go on our own way. The Lord doesn't work that way, though, does he? We want material food and things that satisfy our bodies. But God's ultimate provision is his word and his ways. And we know that God provides for us according to his will and in his timing. And the Lord provides abundantly, doesn't he? And so now we come to the heart of this passage, Deuteronomy 4.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We cannot overstate the importance of this statement, Israel. This is the all-important bedrock statement of Israel. This is called various things, but a good summary of the views of of the very learned men and women who study this passage for a living is found in this expression. It is the most fundamental expression of the Jewish faith. So let's walk through this verse briefly. This statement is called the Shema, after the first Hebrew word in the verse, means literally to hear, as in, listen up, O Israel, hear it. All faithful Jews recited Shema, twice a day, every day of their lives. The Lord, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. This is the Lord's revelation of himself to his people. Let's carry this even further. The way I see this all-important statement is not only that Yahweh is one. I also see this statement as Israel's pledge of allegiance to the one Lord. Dr. Daniel Block, one of my go-to guys, I studied Deuteronomy as well as many others, gave an important point. He and many other godly people see this statement like this. Yahweh, the Lord our God, Yahweh, 
alone. Yahweh alone. It makes sense in the context of this passage because it's not just a declaration of Yahweh's oneness and nothing more. There's much more to it than that. See, all throughout this chapter, Yahweh is is calling the people to have a loyalty to him. It is absolutely true that Yahweh is one. He is the only creator God. Everything else is lower than him. He's created everything and everyone. And so I see this, this passage, this statement as Israel pledging allegiance to this one God and to pledging allegiance to this one God alone, to the exclusion of all other gods, small g. See, the one king who is fit to take the universe's throne is the one to whom his people are to loyally follow and worship. And with Israel pledging allegiance to Yahweh twice a day, everything else flows from this statement. And what follows in the rest of these verses are the statements that are chock full of practical helps to assist them and us in carrying out our pledge of allegiance to Yahweh alone as well. So let's take a look at these. In verse 5, let's look at that one. We have the first response to carry out the Pledge of Allegiance to Yahweh alone. His people are to love Him with all that they have, and they are. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a fitting declaration. Again, what is a steady drumbeat throughout these last chapters, and indeed, even in this book? Love. And love means keeping the commandments of Yahweh. That's why God's people need to learn his rules and statutes and commandments. And once they and we understand them, then we seek to carry them out with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. In other words, everything that's inside of us, in our hearts, in our bodies as well. We pledge allegiance to Yahweh alone by demonstrating love through obeying his commandments. Speaking of our heart, let's look at verse 6. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, what does that mean? What is the difference between loving the Lord with all your heart and now having the commandments of Yahweh on your heart? Or is there a difference? I think there is. In a nutshell, having the words of Yahweh on our heart means that he has shown us a key, shown us a way of taking his word and actually bringing it to the very center, the very core of our being. What Moses is saying here is that God's people are to choose to meditate on his word. This is the primary way of having his word on our hearts. Now, there's much we can say about meditation. And you may have heard about the Eastern way of meditating, right? You know, empty your mind of everything. Well, it's just the opposite with God's word here. The bottom line is that we need to choose to spend our time deeply thinking about the Word of God. We fill our minds with His commandments, with His ways, with His statutes, with His words, and we turn them over and over and over again in our minds to see how they can apply to our lives in our present circumstances. Remember who it is that we are dealing with. We are to love Him. We are to fear Him. We are to learn from Him as His disciples. We don't nearly have the time to do what I'm about to suggest to you. But let me give you a little exercise that you can do this, you know, at home, either by yourself or even with your family. Let's say that you have a bucket list. Maybe you have a bucket list? Some people know, some people do, yeah. 
Now, on your bucket list, literally for decades, you have this. I want to go to Switzerland, and I want to go there for two weeks to have the time of my life, either in the spring or in the wintertime. You know, if you want to go in the wintertime, you want to go for one reason. You want to go to ski. That is on your bucket list. Now, all of a sudden, you come into a whole lot of found money, more than enough to be able to pay your trip of a lifetime to Switzerland. And so now what do you do? You have to make plans, detailed plans, don't you? And that takes a whole lot of energy, a whole lot of thought of, of how to get from here to Switzerland and back. How do you pull this off? Spending time thinking about and planning this trip requires you to meditate on the trip. That's what you're doing when you're making those plans and thinking about it. And the more detailed you are in your meditation, the better, the more vivid your memories will be when you get back from your trip of a lifetime. It is the same way with having God's Word on our hearts. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes prayer. All the while looking forward to more fully living out the pledge of allegiance to our God and our God alone. And so having His Word in our heart is key to preparing us for the next practical step in loving the Lord, pledging allegiance to Him and Him alone. Let's look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. What shall the head of the household in each family teach his children? It says, you shall teach them. What's the them? It's the commandments. It's the statutes. It's the ways of the Lord as filtered through the meditation of your heart. See, if your mind and your heart are full regarding God's ways, then you're going to be able to make the first move and introduce God's ways into the conversations that you have with your family. But it requires you to have done your homework first. It requires you to have God's word on your heart before you do this. But the sad part of the reality of this is that so many men, husbands, fathers, grandfathers, Male friends who can influence their friends simply do not teach the ways of the Lord because they have not chosen to spend any time meditating on God's word. Their hearts are empty. Now, it stands to reason, doesn't it? We cannot drive our vehicles unless we have gas in our vehicles, right? They've got to be filled up with gas. How much more is required with the all-important task of teaching our kids, our grandkids, and others in our circle about the things of the Lord. We've got to get filled up with God's Word. And if we don't, we can't do this. But the command is clear. You shall teach them. Teach them how? In a word, teach them diligently. And this word literally means repetitiously. Over and over and over again. So let's review further. You shall talk of the ways of the Lord all throughout the day. Whether you're at home or away, whether you're ready to go to bed or even getting up. In other words, you take every opportunity to share the words of the Lord. This verse is simply telling us that whether you're together with your family or as a single hanging out with friends, any time is the right time to make the first move to introduce spiritual truth, the spiritual ways of the Lord into your conversations. Make the first move, especially as husbands and fathers. 
God has charged men to do this. I don't see a whole lot of men here, but God has charged men to do this primarily. And sisters in Christ, if you are the heads of your home, then the responsibility and privilege falls on you. Can I make a shameless plug for the pastor's brown bag? <laughs> Every third Sunday of the month, we come together to do these things. We talk about meditation on Holy Scripture, that God's Word be in our hearts. And the truth is that which fills our heart is what we're most likely going to be talking about. Isn't that true? As you know, the Lord Jesus addressed how our tongues are tied to our hearts. Luke 6.45 The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So again, if Scripture fills our hearts, chances are what's going to come out of our mouths. So, join us every third Sunday for an hour. We'll share a meal and we'll talk about these kinds of things, about how to make disciples. Again, the only job that Jesus has given his church to do. And then verses 8 and 9. Moses is telling the people to make even the doorposts of their homes and the, and the gates in their towns to be places where to prominently display the text, the words of God in their, in their communities. Moses also spoke of binding the Lord's words on their hands and even between their eyes. You may have seen these things that religious Jews even now wear. It's called phylacteries, little boxes of scripture. And also, I think they're called kephalin on their hand. They tie them around with, with leather, and they wear these things. You know, Jesus talked about how, how you are trying to be so super pious, and you've got these big phylacteries on your heads. Jesus probably wore one of those, by the way. It's interesting. The point here is that God's people are to display God's words so that they, we, can come into contact with his word in order to do them. Let's think of creative ways that we can get the Lord's statutes, his words, his rules, his commandments into our hearts so we can diligently teach these things to our kids and our grandkids. The Lord is all about us fulfilling his desire for his people to be obedient to his word. So what do we make today of this most excellent, very practical bedrock passage of Scripture? God giving us practical helps so that we might learn his statutes, his ways, and his ways can permeate the lives of ourselves and also the lives of those that we are coming in contact with. Well, it's all about motivation. It's all about relationship. So my question, several questions I have for all of us. Who is Yahweh, in your opinion? Who is he? Is he the almighty creator or something else? Is he the true and living God who speaks life and shows his authority in the world? Or is he not? Where is he in relation to you? Where are you in relation to him? Do you have an up-close and personal relationship? Or is your relationship kind of strange and kind of far away? Or do you not even have a relationship with him? Why would anybody want to serve Yahweh anyway? Is it worth your time to serve him? 
why or why not. I think it's good now to just take a moment to ponder these things, to reflect on them. And so as we just just take a, a moment of silence just to ask the Lord, Lord, where am I in this? What is our relationship together like? Do I even have one? Let's go, Lord, now and just ask him to search us. Father, thank you for being faithful to us. Help us, Lord, to love you and to serve you because of who you are. You know, while I was preparing this message, um, a thought struck me, taking me back to a very powerful song um, that I heard many years ago. And I've referred to this song and over, over the course of the, our message, uh, I alluded to it. It's called uh, God and God Alone. Steve Green sang it. Over the last couple of days, I can't tell you how much I've listened to it, how many times. And every time I listen, it just moves me to the core. The lyrics are simple, but they're powerful. So let me recite them to you. You know, I don't sing it, but let me recite them to you. But let's drink in these words. God and God alone created all that we have called our own. From the mighty to the small, the glory in them all is God's and God's alone. God and God alone reveals the truth of all we call unknown. And all the best and worst of man won't change the master's plan. It's God's and God's alone. God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. Let everything that lives reserve its truest praise for God and God alone. God and God alone will be the joy of our eternal home. He will be our one desire. Our hearts will never tire of God and God alone. God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. Let everything that lives reserve its truest praise for God and God alone. And I say hallelujah. Amen. So as we finish this very practical, profound, bedrock passage today, Scripture, let's recite together the Shema that faithful Jews do twice a day. Deuteronomy 6, 4. And then let's continue through verses 5 and 6 and 7. Recite with me, please. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house 
and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Lord, you are indeed the king of the universe. And you are fit to take the universe's throne. Let everything that lives deserve its truest praise for you and you alone. Lord, today we heard some some bedrock things that you've given to your people, how you've related yourself and how you revealed yourself to them and to us. And Lord, you have called us to bear allegiance to you, to pledge allegiance to you and to you alone. Lord, all the things that would distract us, all the things that would divert us, we don't want those. We want you. We want you alone. You saved us. You saved us for yourself. You saved us to give you glory and honor and praise. All the way from the most mundane things, all the way up to the the major life-altering events in our lives. Lord, I commit myself to you, and I commit my brothers and sisters in this room and all those under the sound of my voice to you, that we would indeed reserve the, the truest praise to you and to you alone. I thank you, Lord, for this time. I thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Help us, Lord, by your spirit to live it out because we love you, because you loved us first. And I now pray, Father, that as we turn our attention to our giving and our singing acts of worship, I pray, Lord, that we'll be able to do that because, again, we love you. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray.